We're going to bring this meeting back to order. Okay, good evening. Welcome to the Queen Anne's County Commissioner's Meeting. This is a public meeting that is being aired live on our local cable television station, QAC-TV7. These media broadcasts provide county citizens an opportunity to watch and review our scheduled public meetings. In addition to our live audience this evening, we are providing remote options for citizens to watch and participate in county commissioner meetings. Citizens may watch our meeting live on our website at qac.org live or on our television channel, BreezeLine Channel 7 and High Definition Channel 507. Citizens can participate by joining the live Zoom meeting by going to qac.org slash public comment. Citizens may also email comments to publiccomment at qac.org. Comments received will be summarized during the press and public comment period on tonight's agenda. We acknowledge everyone's participation and by attending you acknowledge that this session is both recorded and aired. Press and public comment will be taken and is limited to three minutes per person. If you do wish to speak, please sign the sheet on the information table in our lobby. Comments longer than three minutes can be submitted in writing for the commissioner's review. We will now stand and be led in the Pledge of Allegiance by Commission President Jim Moran. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, if you can remain standing for a moment of silence for all of our servicemen and servicewomen serving abroad. Thank you very much. All right, Commissioners, that brings us to uh, the approval of our agenda for today's meeting on March the 14th. So that's been circulated along with the regular and the Sanitary Commission minutes from the February 28th meeting. Uh, they've been circulated for your review. Do we have any additions or corrections? Motion to amend the agenda to add one desk item under the action items. Second. second. Motion and second. All those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Motion to approve the agenda and as amended and the minutes as submitted. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. All right. Thank you, commissioners. So we just uh, had a closed session under the uh, general provisions article 3-305B7 to consult with council and uh, there were no decisions made during our closed session tonight. So that brings us to uh, our first press and public comment period. So thank you for taking the time to express your views to the county commissioners. Comments are limited to three minutes per person. Comments longer than three minutes can be submitted in writing. Uh, this commission respects everyone's desire and their right to convey messages freely. When you come forward, please speak clearly at the standing microphone. State your name, address, and topic of interest. And in keeping with the dignity of our office, we ask that all views be expressed in a respectful and civil manner. And we have one person who signed up, Joe Gannon. Joe Gannon, all right. Good evening, commissioners. Good evening. Mr. Maud, Ms. Margie. Joe Gannon from Churchill, Maryland. My concern tonight is the intersection of Route 19 and 301 and 405 and 301. I know this is a state matter, but I really wish the commissioners would get behind this and contact either Senator Hershey or somebody in the state level to get something done, because I know a process like this takes a long, long time. I wish we'd get started. My suggestion would be to put a, probably an overpass at one of the intersections and close the other one down since they're so close to each other. But 
At this point, I'd go for anything. Since they put the new Beltway up in Middletown, the traffic has been unbearable. I've lived there all my life, and I just cannot believe the traffic. And accidents, it seems to me, I don't have the exact numbers, but it seems to me like there's an accident at one or the other intersections about every other month. And I know there's at least two or three deaths every year there. So it's a major concern, and uh, I really wish you guys could talk to the state and try to get something done about this. Thank you all very much. Thank you. That's all we had to sign up. Would anybody else like to speak? Seeing none, we'll close press and public comment. Okay. All right, moving right along, we can go into our presentations portion of tonight's agenda. So, commissioners, if you want to turn to uh, tab number six, uh, item one on pages one through 23, we have uh, Dr. Josie Atola, our health officer. He is here with uh, a few of his staff members to give us a health department update. So, Dr. Ciotola, can you come on up, please? And I believe the uh, presentation is also up on the screen here as well for our uh, viewing audience. Chair, you got to the slides. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I think it's not 6 o'clock yet, so it's not evening, correct? <laughs> Commissioners, I have brought some honored employees to this meeting tonight because I really want to show you the effects of the support that you have put forth for mobile integrated community health. And with me tonight is Captain Jared Smith, who is the program administrator for mobile integrated community health. Melanie Chapel, our dentist from University of Maryland. Pharmacist. Or pharmacist, rather. I'm sorry. You gave me such a smile while I could see his teeth. I saved that. So, Melanie is our pharmacist from University of Maryland Shore Regional Health, and she is on all of our telemedicine and PharmD consults. Amy Crook is one of our health department nurses and she is one of our community health nurses. And tonight, I would like the team to speak to you and to the citizens of Queen Anne County for the progress that we have made. This is our eighth year. August of this year will be nine years. We started the pilot in the state of Maryland. There are multiple other jurisdictions now following this program and this policy and we're also starting to be recognized nationally for what we are doing. So with your support, Jared, take the ball. Uh, 2012, Dr. Ciotola corralled uh, a number of different multi-disciplinary uh, agencies with the intent to um, come up with a goal or come up with a plan to address uh, patients in the community who were exhibiting unmet needs. The population within our county is ever growing. We have numerous additions to senior living. Um, with more senior, senior patients coming into the county, we know that healthcare needs within our county are also increasing. Why do we need a program like the Mobile Integrated Community Health Program? Despite having the most expensive healthcare system, the United States ranks last overall compared with other industrialized countries 
on measures of quality, efficiency, access to care, equity, and the ability to lead long, healthy, and productive lives. How did we get here? Lack of access to convenient care, uh, limited appointment availability for, for folks within the communities, transportation barriers, patients don't have a way to get to their appointments, limited knowledge of available resources. There are numerous resources out there that patients can utilize, but they have no idea they exist. High healthcare costs. We all know that healthcare costs are, are repeatedly growing or consistently growing. Uh, I think in 2011, uh, the average healthcare spending per person in the United States was $8,500. So for a lot of people, that would be crippling. Healthcare staff shortages. Uh, we all know, especially once COVID hit, we lost a lot of our nursing staff in, in hospitals, and that's caused for a lot of issues with within our hospital system. And geographic barriers, uh, which, which includes physici physician shortages um, and a greater number of uninsured, longer distances for patients to travel, which they may have difficulty doing. A study by the National Academy of Medicine found that medical care itself only accounts for 10 to 20 percent of the contributors to people's health outcomes. And by contrast, the many social determinants of health play a much, much bigger role in 80 to 90 percent of the contributing factors. Now, the thing with this is that the 10 to 20 percent can be dealt with in the hospital, but once the patient gets home, they don't have a way to, to have those, those needs met. So that's where we come in. We come in to address the 80 to 90 percent. Now, some of the social determinants of health, uh, access to primary health care, health insurance coverage, economic stability, education, social and community life, um, and neighborhoods, quality of housing, access to clean water and air, etc. One thing to note is that Queen Anne's County is technically considered a medical desert, uh, which means that we are one of only three counties in the state of Maryland without a definitive care hospital. I thought that we were only one out of two counties. One out of three. Dorchester, Dorchester is now Dorchester is now yeah. closed and is That's essentially right. a freestanding ED with a medical office right. building in Caroline and us. Right. Thank you. Even Garrett County has a hospital. Yeah, they do. We have one freestanding emergency department within the county. That's an actual term. And which is the only place that patients can go for really any after-hour care. The partnerships that it took to put this program together, we have Department of Emergency Services, Department of Health, MIMS, which is the EMS state agency, UMS Shore Regional Health, our county commissioners, Addictions and Prevention Services, Area Agency on Aging, and Luminous Health. While we're on Luminous Health, behind me sit the nurses of the transition team from Luminous Health. Sarah Brace is the leader of the transition team, and they are the responsible unit that helps with discharge of patients. And the fact that Anne Arundel Medical Center is the highest number of patients that we transport into their ER. They are number one for Queen Anne County for EMS. Our program is funded by, uh, we receive funding from Luminous Health and um, I'm sure Regional Health. We receive funding from accounting commissioners from the health department. And then the majority of our funding does come from grants. 
Our team consists of uh, a number of different uh, people with different roles within healthcare, each one coming with their own unique uh, knowledge and skill set. And uh, when brought together, they really complement each other uh, in order to give the patient the most comprehensive home visit that, that we can do. We have uh, Department of Health nurses, our Queens County paramedics, Melanie, our hospital-based pharmacist, and if, if we have a patient with substance abuse issues, uh, we will take a peer recovery specialist to our home visit as well. And then we have Dr. Ciatola, who has oversight of both the health department and emergency medical services. He's telling that guy in the back is standing on a box. No. He's not. <laughs> <laughs> the, way our, the way our home visits work, uh, the paramedics, they will take on the physical examination, uh, they'll take vital signs, they'll hook the patient up to the cardiac monitor, they'll do an EKG, they can test for hemoglobin A1C, which is a good indicator of diabetes or prediabetes. They will do a home safety assessment. Uh, they utilize the PEAT scale, which is the physical um, uh, assessments, the physical environment assessment tool. Um, they check for fire safety issues, uh, fall risk assessment, and if need be, we will install safety devices um, within the home. Our nurses, they review the past medical history and medication inventory for the patients. Uh, they do a diabetes risk assessment. They'll start the telehealth consult with Melanie. And then they'll tackle those social determinants that we talked about earlier. They'll, they'll do an assessment of patient education and their support system to try to find out what issues are occurring that are causing the patients to fall through the healthcare cracks. At the end of the visit, uh, the team collaborates and they talk with the patient and they determine what referrals would benefit the patient and what ways they can get the patient uh, to have their needs met. And it's important to note that there is no cost to the patient for the, for the mixed program. The health and home safety, again, we do a fall risk assessment, um, a physical environment assessment tool, and then we do something called the Uroqual, which um, measures the patient's view of their own quality of life. When COVID hit, we, we stopped doing uh, home visits for safety reasons, but we were able to use the expertise of our staff and their unique skills and knowledge there too, to pivot and tackle the COVID-19 uh, epidemic. We, did, we first staffed one of the first drive up COVID test sites in the state, um, starting on March 20th. We partnered with Luminous Health to install remote patient monitors for COVID positive and suspected positive patients. And we vaccinated assistant living, senior housing, and congregate living facilities, as well as bedbound individuals. So we were taking the vaccines to patients who couldn't go out to these clinics to get the vaccines. And that was a total of uh, 1,200 vaccines to date. That's me. <laughs> Um, my name is Melanie Chapel. I am a pharmacist at University of Maryland Shore Regional Health. I've been part of the MIC team since 2016. I told Dr. Ciotola very early on that I would go on a lecture circuit for him to advocate for this program. I sit in a very unique position at the hospital in that I see all the counties. So Shore Health serves Talbot, Caroline, Dorchester, Kent, and Queen Anne's County. And I wish every other, all those counties had this program. I see the value every day in what we do for these patients, and I just wish um, it was at every other county. So I actually get the ability to, um, from the comfort of my own office in the hospital, while the team 
is there to talk to patients through our um, telehealth plat platform called Backline. And my process starts by getting the med inventory from the team members, and then I can individually go through um, the medications with the patient. Um, I can assess for barriers. Um, for me, um, one of the things that I personally that has come from this is I feel I've become a better pharmacist because it's not just knowing about how medications work in a patient's body, but the barriers that exist for people to take medications correctly. And it could be education, it could be access to, to the medications, costs, those things. So I may be able to assess um, these patients, um, you know, anything that can, can prevent a patient from taking medication correctly. So we navigate in real time while the patient is and the team is there, we will sometimes navigate with their personal, personal um, primary care providers to navigate problems that patients are have. So it's a really real-time, wonderful program to kind of fix problems right while the team is there. And we have so many, so many, so many success stories. And sometimes it's shocking to me. Um, you know, you, you think, you know, the hospital, you know, patients go into a hospital, you know, wanting to improve their health status, but there still exists multiple things when patients get home. And we really have been able to be in a unique position, even comparatively to home health home healthcare companies, in my opinion, to kind of navigate real world issues. So we have some success stories. I think the next slide shows some of those, um, oh, it's the next one, I think. Some of those next stories, just as a point of reference, these are not real patient pictures on this, on this slide. But I just want to kind of highlight some really interesting ones that I see, and these are just not, these are, we've seen multiple examples of these, but what, the first patient um, highlighted here is a patient we saw, a 75-year-old woman who had multiple hospitalizations, who had come in for falls, um, she was complaining of weakness, and when the team got in there, they determined that she'd been taking three of the same class of medications that lower somebody's blood pressure and pulse rate. So she was taking something incorrectly for a long period of time. We were able to go in there and navigate and reconcile the medication list and make sure that she was taking the appropriate medications. So there's, it was, it was, an, it was a tremendous success story because her pulse was dropping and she was falling and by taking those medications that she shouldn't have been taking out of her arsenal, we avoided you know having future problems for her. The next patient was, a patient who had um, low literacy, he couldn't, he couldn't read, so it was very difficult for him to navigate his COPD, COPD medications, nebulized medicines, and so it was really a unique process. We kind of tailored an um, educational system with pillboxes and charts and color coding things to make sure this patient could take his medications appropriately, so we had a unique system put in place to make sure this patient was um, in, you know, making sure he's taking his medications correctly. The other um, team, the last patient that I want to talk about is something that to me, this happened early on. I, I've been in, in this program since 2016, and this to me is, for me as a pharmacist, changed my whole view about how I interact with patients. This patient had multiple ER visits for um, low blood sugar. And I was thinking when the team got in there, I was going to go be educating this patient on insulin, on how to eat, what foods to eat. And really what we determined is this patient was not looking at her insulin, she was not drawing up her insulin correctly because she couldn't see very well. 
So the team was able to work with the local Lions Club and get this patient a new set of glasses. And guess what stopped? Our visits. So for me, like I said, insulin is going to help somebody manage their diabetes, but if they're not taking correctly, you can really have a whole host of errors with that. So I really do feel this program is invaluable. Um, it's, it's, you, in, in the pharmacy world, it is very unique, and it's just uh, what, is, what services it's providing the community is amazing. If you have a, can I ask a question? Um, if you have a patient who's on, you find out that they're on a cocktail, so to speak, can you change that, or do you have to go back to the the referring physician and and? Uh... So another another example is we've had people. So another example that I remember very early on, there was a patient that got came into the hospital. And she was on 80 milligrams of lisinopril, which is a medication for blood pressure. When she got discharged, she was only supposed to be on 2.5 milligrams. And so when the team got in there, she continued to take the 80 milligrams. So that's whopper of a dose. So what ended up happening that for that patient, we called the primary care um, office right in that moment and got her appointment immediately. And she was seen and a, her, that medication was addressed. So you're regulating her meds. That's, yep. That's great. Thank you for doing that. Okay, so I'm going to share three more success stories. Uh, the first one is a 68-year-old woman living in unsafe home conditions. She was also found to be without a primary care provider, and she did not have a landline phone or a mobile phone. She did not have an adequate income to buy proper groceries, so the McTeam referred her to a primary care provider, provided her with free government phone, and helped her get access to food stamps. Um, so I feel like this patient and her needs and the services that we provided are um, a pretty good representation of our typical MIC patient. But I chose her because I think that she highlights the success of our integration in our program. Uh, the first time that we saw her, we actually had to send her to the ER because her blood sugar was very high. She didn't have insulin, but she also didn't have a doctor to prescribe it. Um, so while she was in the ER, the transitional nurse navigator called me and said, you know, she, she's here, and we had tried to follow her unsuccessfully because we couldn't get in touch with her. Um, so we coordinated to get her 30 days of all of her medications, which gave me time to find her a primary care physician. Um, and then I went back two days later just to make sure all of her meds were in place and that she was feeling okay. Um, we delivered food from the food pantry. And I also brought a benefits counselor with me that time. Um, she had a Medicare plan that I could not find a provider on this side of the Eastern Shore for her. So we changed her back to regular Medicare so that I could get her a doctor. Um, and then we went back a third time and um, helped her get her food stamps and her phone um, and her primary care physician. So now she's being followed regularly. She has a primary care doctor who comes to her home. Um, she has her food stamps. She is able to make calls on her own behalf because now she has a phone. So she's doing very well. Um, our second person, 75-year-old man with limited mobility, the patient's wife, who is his primary caregiver, called 911 many times for crews to assist her with moving him down the steps to the car for appointments. As a result of our visit, a stairlift was installed at no cost to the patient. He was linked to a visiting nurse services from the VA, and his wife uh, was referred for respite care. So prior to our visit, they had called 26 times in the previous five months. Um, because he had appointments that he needed to attend and they have limited <coughs> courses locally. Um, so she couldn't get him outside and felt that her only option was to call 911 
two times for every appointment, once to get him out to the car and once to get him back in the house. Um, so we had to think outside the box a little bit for this one, and I coordinated with a local company who um, installed a stair lift within a week that the health <coughs> department funded, and they have not had to call since. Um, and the third one is an 88-year-old woman who was recently discharged from the hospital with a full cardiac workup. During the visit, the, blood, the patient's blood pressure was found to be dangerously high despite the patient lacking any symptoms or complaints. The team was able to talk to the patient into being transported to the hospital where her hypertension was addressed and she was discharged with a prescription to manage it moving forward. So I think she's a good one because when Mick started, the criteria was five 911 calls in a rolling six month period. But then we um, realized that it's not just the frequent flyers who can benefit from mixed services. Uh, so this lady in particular lives with her family. She has a lot of support. Uh, she's financially stable, was compliant with her meds. On paper, she seemed to have everything in place. And the hospital just referred her because she's new to the area and they wanted to ensure that she had all the services that Queen Anne's County could offer. But she actually wrote uh, a little note following her visit. So I want to share that because I think it shows the success. Uh, she says, kudos to the nurse and paramedic. They were the best. This was the best visit I had by the paramedic and nurse. They both saved my life. My blood pressure was very high. And if I didn't make this appointment, I might not be here today. The two of them were so efficient and they saved my life. Thank you both for the wonderful treatment. I had to go to the hospital. Very good treatment. So I think she wraps up my success stories best. It's going to make you guys feel good. Yes. And I just want to give you a quick snapshot of uh, the patients that we're seeing. We've, we've had a total of 742 home visits. And the percentage of patients through the Is that one year? Uh, that's, that's the um, totality of the program. Okay. Uh, the percentage of patients over the age of 65 is 75%. The average number of comorbidities per patient is six. So we've got a lot of, a lot of folks with a lot of comorbidities, a lot of, um, a lot of things they're dealing with. Average number of medications per patient, 10. What? Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of people have trouble following uh, the regimen for one medication, let alone 10 different. And a lot of our patients, like I said, are 65 and over and live alone, and they don't have a lot of support. A number of patients living alone, 42%, and the median age of patients is 71. The reduction in ED visits one year post-enrollment to our program was around 21%. Uh, this chart here just shows the reduced hospital utilization, and we used CRISP data. Uh, if you're not familiar, it's a health information exchange. Uh, they have all the data of the patient's hospital visits, uh, EMS visits. And with that data, we were able to, to um, find out that one month after enrollment into MIC, there was a 58% reduction in ED visits. At two months, it was 32%. Six months, 27%, and 12 months it was uh, 21 percent um inpatient visits that's you know it's a big deal for the hospitals because you know they can get penalized for you know a 30-day readmit so we have a 66 percent reduction in within the first 30 days uh 54 percent at two months 41 percent at six months and 26 percent at 12 months and then the chart to the right just shows the average um percent change in the cost the hospital cost uh the, to treat the patient so these, these numbers are pretty big too, 64% at one month, two months, 41%, six months, 25%, and 12 months, 10%. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, we have the success stories with our patients, but we, um, we're also showing dramatic 
reduction in the use of our emergency departments for these patients in our in, inpatient admissions. Captain Smith, uh, do the case managers, when a patient's being discharged from Anne Arundel or Easton or Salisbury, would they contact you and let you know? Because yes. they're the ones doing, right? If they need a home health care nurse, they're going to, the case manager's going to find the home health care nurse, yeah. Bayada or MedStar or whoever. So they'll, they'll do the home health care nurse and get a hold of you? Yep. It's great. Yeah. And oftentimes, I mean, I don't know if you've, if, I hope none of you have been hospitalized. Um, and hello, I'm Sarah Brayson uh, from Luminous Health. I just little seat, seat swap over here. And thank you for, for letting us join you. Um, but patients are, are so sick leaving the hospital. This is long gone are the days where we tune you up fully and send you home. You're going home very sick. Um, and those case managers are scrambling with patients who are uninsured, who mm, are emotionally homeless, may, that's another new term, um, patients who don't have family or friends to help them out and do things for them. Uh, they're, they're very, very sick returning home. And so again, case managers are scrambling to get plans together and are running into huge barriers. Uh, I don't know what the resources are in Queen Anne's County. This has changed. Who can I call? And it's Mick. You, you have to call Mick. You have to, and these individuals live in, their, uh, live in these communities. They know what's available. They work there. Um, and we are, Queen Anne's County is healthier because of this program. Uh, we, as, as um, has been alluded to in this presentation, other counties have taken note of this and have, have spun off their own programs, which uh, are all very highly successful because of what was started here. Um, and you know, I, we've, we've really reaped the benefits of things happening in Anne Arundel and Prince George's uh, counties as well because of this. So um, I cannot say enough good things about this program. Um, I, I just, uh, to sum it up best, Queen Anne's County is better off, patients are better off because of this program. Well, because of you guys. <laughs> Absolutely. The folks sitting at this table, yes. I, I've heard, not, not recently, but I've heard of days uh, where they couldn't get a home health care nurse. And you're, so you're there within the same day or next day? What, it, what is the time frame? Uh, it, it varies, but we usually try to get, at least get them scheduled, what would you say, 48 hours after? So it's within days. And if, if Melanie or Sarah calls and says this one's priority, then we make them priority. Are you dressing changes? Um, we have. Working on that. <laughs> You're not supposed to say that, right? Commissioners, thank you very much. Thank Any you. other questions for the um, So your funding mechanism, I'm trying to go back to uh, your partners. Um, you, you, you're, this program is funded, you know, obviously with the help of the commissioners. And um, uh, is there grant dollars available that you guys? We're mostly, most of our program is funded by grants. Okay. The, the bulk of it. All right. You guys should take this on the road to other counties and do this same presentation. Yeah, well, we were the first in the state, and uh, like Sarah said, a lot of uh, jurisdictions follow suit. And we've, we've taken them in and we've showed them the roads and kind of helped them set up the programs, and they've all been pretty successful as well. Dr. Ciotola gets great praise statewide by other counties for this program, so. Not just me. 
your C in the program. And it was good That's to see why him. I felt that it was important. The face behind the, the curtain. It's very good to, to see him. him. Yep. So. It was much better than looking at you every month. I know. That's Not right. that we don't enjoy seeing you, but you can bring your we'll friends like you, back buddy. next time. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's amazing. Uh, I guarantee he took a call. Uh, he probably shouldn't have taken it. All right, commissioners, uh, our next presentation is from the Department of Emergency Services, and we have uh, Mr. Scott Haas, the Director of Emergency Services, and his team. He has a few new members he wants to introduce this evening. So, Scott, come on up. Uh, if you want to turn to tab, uh, tab six, item two, beginning on page 24, is his presentation, and it is also up on the screen here this evening. So, Scott, Doc's playing double duty here tonight. I think I'm safe to say good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Now, it's six after six. Yeah, because you, you went over on your time, so we just wanted to say ditto from what Doc needed, said. I thought, we, I thought we needed an intermission. Very proud of our team. Thanks for having us. Yes. All right. Too many questions, I guess. So anyway, Doc, great job. Great job. Uh, so the primary mission tonight is to meet the new guys. So these are the new guys, my two new division chiefs. Well, one's not exactly new. He's just wearing a different uniform. <laughs> well, both of them aren't exactly new. And to kind of hit the history on both of them, so Zach, sitting next to me, uh, has been part of our EMS division since 2014. He is hip deep in the MIC program, uh, which just got a presentation on and has been with the program since it basically started. And he is actually our primary representative on a state level. So he does a lot of the state presentations. Uh, through our licensing agency and helps, like uh, Jared said, helps other agencies implement our programs. So we're very proud of what he does on that. Uh, he has served as a paramedic in the division, a sergeant and a lieutenant, and took the huge leap to uh, shoot for division chief, did a great job uh, coming through the interview process, floated to the top and hit the street running in December. Mm -hmm. Had a little FaceTime with uh, Mr. Wheatley. I was just gonna, that was gonna be my next question. So how many times have you talked <coughs> to Scott Wheatley since you've taken over this position? You want before or after he retired? <laughs> <laughs> after. Uh, just clarification, he quit. He didn't retire, he quit. Uh, he okay. left, left uh, Zach stranded, so. I call him a quitter. I would say probably once a week. Once a week, yeah. good. So he, yeah, is, he hasn't cut the, the cord yet he is uh, still well, closely I, I connected to us. I think it's for his mental stability. I think it's important, Zach, that you keep him in the loop, no, even I, if it's just your loop, you, <laughs> the two of you. I mean, we could have had him drug him back up here for the presentation. I'm sure yeah. he'd love to another set of ribbons. I can that guarantee. Might a, that might I be can, a good idea just next time. I can guarantee he's watching this. <laughs> I can guarantee I'm surprised it. he hasn't popped up in the comments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he he uh, might pop up with these guys out here to say a, a couple words. Uh, so anyway, my other division chief, uh, which has taken over the communications division and started in January, uh, I would say he hit the street running because the unfortunate thing for Phil when he came in was we were just starting the budget process. And with two new division chiefs, my sole goal was to get the budget done. And Phil kind of came in unsupervised, just kind of walked in and just started doing his job. So luckily we hired somebody that Todd hired back in 1996 uh, for the Department of Public Works, and that's where Phil started his career with the county, uh, transitioned over to the Sheriff's Office, worked over 20 years in the Sheriff's Office, uh, retired as a first sergeant in multiple programs Phil oversaw at the mm -hmm. at a sergeant level and through the Sheriff's Office. 
Where we got connected with him was uh, during the CAD project, our Tyler CAD integration. He oversaw the Sheriff's Department side and we worked basically with Phil for two years. So I got to see his management style, how he handled the project and how he worked with our team. And he's been a great fit ever since he's walked in the door. So we're both very proud to have both these guys coming on board and very proud to have you meet them for the first time. So departmentally, kind of an overview of what we've got going on. Uh, both Zach and Phil are gonna give you brief updates on the communications division EMS departmentally. Uh, one thing that we're kind of excited about is our special operations division who oversees our emergency management division actually got to go to the federal integrated public alert and warning systems lab, which is just outside of DC, which is also called IPAWS because we got to do alphabet soup on everything. Mm -hmm. uh, the IPAWS system is basically the early warning system in a disaster. So as a local jurisdiction, we're certified to put out IPAWS messages over that system. So we actually got uh, direct training, got to visit the site where the information is actually pushed out and got some training directly from the people who run the lab, which is great for us. Another big project that, that we're assistant in coordinating with is the Cloverfields drainage project, which I'm sure all of you are kind of familiar with. Um, but they have a huge drainage issue in that area. Uh, we assisted with the, the grant process and we received approval for a scoping project grant, which DPW is actually the, overseeing the project and they're in the RFQ process. I am sure they will be giving you an update here sometime in the next couple months on how that process is going and hopefully have a vendor selected to do the scoping project. The next thing that we're also working on is, which, which Doc kind of grazed on on his presentation, COVID <coughs> set us back quite a bit and there's a lot of projects that got us set back. I was basically reassigned from DES and worked in the health department for a little over a year. Uh, and so did our emergency management team. And because of that, we got behind on some of our, our core planning projects that we do. So right now we're working on emergency operations plan update. Normally that's done about every five years. We're probably at the six year mark. We're projecting that June, that project will be complete and will be in front of you for final approval. Uh, another project that we're working on is a strategic plan for the department. Uh, we just begun that project. We've had one departmental meeting uh, working on our, our five-year strategic plan, and that is another document that we're hoping to have done in June and presenting to you for final approval on. And then the other thing that we're working on as a department, and it includes multiple public safety agencies, is our active assailant work group, uh, which has been an ongoing project that started prior to COVID and got really derailed during COVID. Uh, and we've reinitiated the project. The downside was we almost had to start from ground zero, the work that we did pre-COVID, because so many people retired, changed positions, got promoted. It was almost an entirely new work group when we put it back together after COVID. So we almost had to start from ground zero. Uh, the good news is we're, we're, we've come a long way with the group. We're in the final processes in determining the training scenarios and the training that we're gonna push out with all public safety agencies in the county, but it's all encompassing. So it includes all law enforcement agencies, all emergency services, uh, school systems involved with it. There's a huge team that is working on that project and more details to come on our next update with that. 
Zach has prepared some information for emergency services on the medical side. And Zach, take it away. Good evening, commissioners. Except we're going to give a brief update on the emergency medical services division. We're going to start by reviewing our 2022 stats and then go over some of the initiatives that we did in 2022 and then what our initiatives are for 2023. <clears throat> so in 2022, we had 8,374 total EMS alerts in the county. That includes volunteer and EMS, or volunteer and career EMS. Out of that, we did 3,817 transports. Uh, we had 67 total flyouts, so we averaged about one flyout a week, a little over that. Then we're sending folks on a helicopter either to Baltimore or Christiana, depending on what trauma center is available. Uh, if you look at this, it's a breakdown of our hospital distribution. Anne Arundel Medical Center, as Dr. Ciatola alluded to in his presentation, is our number one receiving facility, receiving just over 29% of all EMS patients within the county. The next closest facility is um, Queen Anne Emergency Center with a little over 25%. And then Chester River, Chestertown comes in at 788 Easton, and, and then Bay Health and Dover are the stratification of our top five facilities. Um, one big initiative that we put in is we are obviously facing difficulties with turnover times and wait times at hospitals. I know that we've briefed you guys on that. Fortunately, our department was able to take the lead here on the shore and partner with the other mid-shore agencies to develop a policy for a um, hospital turnover standards. We worked with the hospital administration and EMS to come to a unified goal of what we could do to make sure that these patients are getting offloaded safely and effectively so that EMS units can get back into the field and be available for calls. We have seen significant decreases in our hospital wait times at shore. Uh, the state has noticed and actually put a work group together and you're starting to see policies that I won't say are carbon copies of ours but are very similar that have been enacted in jurisdictions throughout the state even so to the point that we're now able to use our offload policy that we developed here on the shore at Anne Arundel as well. And since we've implemented that in late December, we've actually seen some improvement on our turnover times with them as well. Zach, could you give us just an example of one of the things that you guys are doing different that's freeing up our ambulances and getting them back in service? So what we're doing is we're, we're working closely with the uh, charge nurse in the ER. So we're going with them when we come in, we're checking and we're saying, hey, we've got 30 minutes. Um, we're starting the timer at 30 minutes. Once we get to 30 minutes, we go back to them and say, Bye. what can we do to help? <laughs> what can we do to help? Bye. And if not, then we say, okay, we've got a bed that we found that's available. We're putting the patient in the bed and then we're coming back. So that's what we're doing. Okay. Um, the next. So some of our other 2023 operational notes that happened right there at the end of the year, we uh, were able to purchase some new ventilators for EMS that allows us to do some advanced ventilation with intubated patients. And it also allows to do BiPAP um, ventilation instead of CPAP ventilation for our respiratory distress patients. This is something that's gonna help us mitigate our CHF patients or COPD patients and the patients that have long-term health effects from COVID. Um, we have implemented this 41 times since we've purchased it, and we are seeing significant improvements in both uh, patient statuses and the ability to turn over our patients, because when we come in with a patient that's on BiPAP, we're the only ones for ground EMS in the state that are doing it, and we get right to the front of the line to get turned over on them. So the hospital's like, well, we need to take that patient now. Uh, Another thing that we did is we revamped our cardiac arrest response algorithm. We looked at our data from our survivability for cardiac arrest. We tweaked a little bit of our procedures, the order that we bring equipment in, the order that we perform procedures, and we have seen a significant increase in both our return of spontaneous circulation rate 
and our survival to discharge rate since we implemented that in October of 2022. Um, the third thing I've got on my hit list is the crew force application, which I'll go to the next slide, which gives you a little view of it. Um, so since we implemented our new CAD system, we have an application now, and if you look at every volunteer and career, um, both fire and EMS unit in the county, there's an iPad in the front, and we all run this application, um, which gives us real-time data for the CAD. As the dispatchers putting notes on the car, we're able to see those notes come in. We're able to see the car calls come in as they're pending. We're able to see units that are responding. This is a screenshot of a um, fire that was happening right here in Centerville last week. And if you look, you can see a fire truck coming down 213. You can see a fire truck coming up Commerce Street. And then you can see a slew of fire trucks and EMS units that are on scene already. Now, this is intel that we've never been able to have. We've only been able to go off the radio and try and figure out where people are. We can actually watch everyone respond and know who's going to be the first arriving, second arriving, third arriving unit and what responsibilities they need to take. That's um, cool. And outside of that, you also can see all of the other calls going on. So if you're saying, oh, I don't, like, was, was there another fire that's going on? So if you look in this case, there was actually a brush fire that was in Millington. So crews can see that so they know that there may not be as many resources up north that are available because they're already tied up on their own incident. So it's real, real significant data that folks are able to get in real time. A little bit better than that pager. Just a little bit more advanced. It's, it's <laughs> a lot better than a pager. Yeah. Yeah. So top priorities for us moving forward in 2023. Obviously, our number one priority is uh, the sixth transport unit that you guys have approved for this fiscal year. Unfortunately, due to some unforeseen resignations, I won't call Scott Wheatley out, but we'll call Scott Wheatley out. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't Scott. It wasn't Scott. <laughs> but in some uh, unforeseen uh, resignations as well. We um, currently are 15 positions short mm. in our division, which is just short of two transport units. Um, so right now I've got four that were just in cleared to independently function within the last few weeks. I've got nine that are currently in field training, and I've got two that are in the requisition process through HR. Um, is Anne Arundel taking our people? Uh, Anne Arundel, Naval District, there's a lot of folks that are going and matriculating over to career fire service because a lot of folks get into this business as an entry level and then they want to be a firefighter. So we do see a good amount of that. And you also see some folks that have burnt, gotten burned out of healthcare altogether from COVID and are getting out of the field. Yep. So the, the biggest thing that's hurting us right now is they're not getting reproduced in the training programs. So, like, if you take a look at the paramedic program at, at Chesapeake College, the bulk of the people in the paramedic program already have a job, already working for a career service, and they're looking to upgrade within their service. There's not new blood coming into the system. Yeah. So there's a huge shortage yeah, of certified providers. And what I was going to highlight with this, with our turnover, unfortunately, when we are bringing people in, they are completely green. Like, the ink on their card is still wet. They are freshly certified at the EMS level, and that takes us a solid four to six months to clear them. So when, us, when we get all these positions in, they have to go through an extended clearance process because unfortunately with COVID, the amount of educational clinical learning opportunities that were afforded to students have gone through the floor. Um, so we are kind of in a, a repeating cycle of the fact that folks did not get a chance to do field training during their educational process. And now we're having to train them when we hire them which then means we can't bring folks in to do educational parts for their training process. So I don't know when the end of this is going to be, but for the foreseeable future, anyone that we hire that's brand new, it's going to take us six months to clear them. Uh, but we have a very rigorous clearance process, and once we've got them through those six months, we know that they are good to go, they're good to function, and that they are going to keep the highest level of care and standards that we have for our department. Uh, 
Because so our medical director won't settle for anything less. He won't. But I do want to shout out to my staff because obviously with being down 15 positions, it has taken a huge toll. Um, we've had to take both of, our or both of our supervisor units out of service in order to backfill our transport units and keep them up. Um, so our staff has been stretched thin. They've been presented with a lot of challenges, but they've risen to the occasion and they make me proud every single day that they go out there. Um, the last thing that I had on the burn is just for your guys' situational awareness. We ordered a supervisor truck in FY22. Uh, here now, 18 months later, I've got staff that are going up to do a final inspection on it on Thursday, and we hope to have it in service in April when we get delivery of it. So we're talking 19 months just to get a truck in service with all of our shipping delays and all of our um, manufacturing delays. So obviously getting the trucks in and getting the trucks ordered and rolling is a high priority for us. And with that, that's all I had for EMS. And if you guys don't have any questions, I will turn it over to Chief English for communications. Communicate away. Can I? I'd like oh. to share a personal note about the importance of your department, doctor. In August, I I left I left I left church. I don't know why, but I went to a store on my way home on Route 50. There was a backup. I get around the backup, and there's a truck, a pickup truck, with a trailer uh, crunched into the median between the highways. So I pulled around. I got out. This is August. And for whatever reason, I went. I opened the door on the passenger side because the driver's side was too close to the guardrail and I open the door and there's a, a woman on top of a gentleman and she said I just lost his pulse I think he's dead and she says I'm a param I'm a EMT from Dover I said okay so we immediately pulled started pulling the gentleman out and at that time, a state trooper came over, so he had one side, I had the other, she had his legs. We pulled him out, there was no pulse, we laid him on the 110 degree Route 50, and she started uh, cardio. CPR. CPR, excuse me. And all I could think about was he needed a defibrillator. So I turned, and Graysonville just pulled up, and Queenstown was coming in, and I started running towards Graysonville, and I said, we need a defibrillator. And they actually had it in their hands, and ran, to, and the guy's still obviously on the, on the ground, and within minutes, you guys are there, Graysonville's there, Queenstown there, you guys take over, and you put the paddles on, and shock them and he's still dead. Within a minute, you put the cardiac assist device on and you know, you guys are, women are exceptional at doing this and it started pumping on his chest. It's 100 degrees out, I'm sweating and I just back up and honestly, I just prayed and there were a eight, ten people working on this guy. And minutes, 
five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever, 12 minutes, and they can't get his heart to start. So they pick him up, you know, six, eight people pick him up, the, the compression is still on him, and they get him into the back of the EMS, and just time goes by, and it's like 20 minutes, 30, this guy's been dead all this time. And all I can keep thinking about it, his eyes. His eyes were open. And I had never seen a dead person before. And your staff was just, and the volunteers were just beyond professional, calm, cool and collected, and just in that mode of, we're gonna save this guy. So finally, the ambulance left and he still isn't alive. So I kind of lived with that for a number of days and I just kept thinking about the guy's eyes and, and, and what, I, what I'm trying to say. So I had heard, so not to be a, a downer, but because of your work, uh, I heard that the guy walked out of University of Maryland a few weeks later. So funny enough, uh, Commissioner, that I was actually on that call. I was actually in the. Are you the guy that pushed me out of the way? I might have been. You, you should have. I'm, I get into business mode sometimes, um, but I was on that call, and we transported him to Easton because he was viable. Uh, we got a heart rate back halfway to Easton. He went to Easton. I, I mean, it must have been thirty minutes. Hmm? And you just didn't but give up. High, high quality CPR, high quality oxygenation, all of the initiatives that we were talking about that we put in for our new cardiac arrest algorithm were used on that. Um, the patient did get his pulse back before we got to Easton, was actually starting to buck the tube a little bit from us. He got transferred to university, and you are correct, he did actually sign out AMA to go handle his business for the weekend, and then came back and got a triple bypass on Monday. That is good. We, we were able to preserve his brain function and resuscitate him to the point that he was able to make those decisions and fully function. The, the lucky side for us is we have a great group of commissioners that support what we do out in the field and the devices you saw us use, not every jurisdiction has those devices and I can guarantee those devices are what saved that person's life. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and the quick response, I mean, you were there. Mm -hmm. Early. It was, it seemed like seconds. So another, not to keep time back into this, but on that individual call, Graysonville had just cleared an MVC. They were actually backing into their station, saw the call got put out as an MVC, started driving through the call before it was even dispatched. So they were there instantaneously because they were moving before they even were officially alerted for the call. Yeah. So it's all of these, all of these technology, all of these tools coming together and the people behind them make us a very successful team and an excellent EMS system within the state of Maryland. But well, we appreciate you. Well, we appreciate the support. So Phil, unfortunately, like we've we put a whole lot of pressure on you to shine here towards the end. <laughs> Do it. Good evening. So last year, um, the Department of Emergency Services call takers handled over 61,000 phone calls. Mm. Grab that mic. So last year, um, our call takers handled over 61,000 phone calls. Um, of those phone calls, 21,000 were 911 emergency calls. 
Technology has really changed the way that we receive those calls. As you can tell by the statistics, uh, wireline phones don't necessarily get used as much anymore. We average about 2,000 phone calls for 911 from a wired phone. Cell phones seem to be, are obviously the primary method used to contact 911. Um, we handled almost 19,000 phone calls from a cell phone. We recently started receiving text message sessions for 911, and uh, as you can tell, we had roughly about 100 of those. Some of the initiatives and programs we were working on last year and the beginning of this year that have uh, really assisted us in our, our position. Um, Queen Anne's County was, uh, Queen Anne's County led our region by being the first county to switch over to the new next gen 911 system. Um, we completed that August of last year and uh, recently, February, Talbot County uh, joined us in switching over to NG911. We anticipate the rest of the uh, region to be completed in, by the end of June, hopefully. Um, and then with that system, it will really improve the way that we can receive uh, 911 phone calls. We can also receive text messages and, and photo and video through the 911 system. Last week, um, on our Tyler CAD system, we performed a full system upgrade to improve some of the software deficiencies that we were receiving. That, that uh, upgrade was successful, and um, we are still you know, working through some of the other issues. Obviously, it's a new system that we're working on continuing to improve the way the system functions. One of the uh, technology pieces that go along with that CAD system is our fire reporting. We have an interface from our CAD system that works with fire records so that the data that we receive through 911 and the call takers that input the data, that information will then be transferred over to fire records assisted of local fire departments in completing their reporting. Like Zach, our staffing, um, we, we are working on fill, filling the vacant positions that we have. We currently have two public safety dispatchers uh, in, that we are working with human resources to get hired and, and uh, get them started. Um, we have four divisions in the communications unit. In that communication unit, we have a lieutenant, a sergeant, and then four call takers or dispatchers, depending on what position they're going to fulfill that day. Um, currently, we have three PSDs in training, and when we get the two new hires on, that will put a trainee on each shift and include in one shift we'll have two trainees. Um, the difficulty with that is is that it takes a experienced call taker to do the training so we lose that position um, just causes a little bit more work for the uh, experienced person. So that is the conclusion of our update unless you guys have any questions for us. But we're looking forward to, in the end of March, meeting you for the budget and going over our budget uh, request for this year. And uh, thank you very much for all the support. And so you're, thanks for letting us do an update. Your, your shortfall on um, personnel, that's got to be the largest it's ever been. It is. And I think it, it, which Todd can probably testify to, it's a global county problem. It's not yeah. focused just on our department. You can probably hit every department and they're probably saying right. the same thing. Uh, we are we like Zach said we're overcoming it but we're not running efficiently because of it 
uh, on the EMS side, our downside is we don't have field supervisors right now. They're, they're on a transport They're actually unit. on units, right. And some of the procedures that we do and some of the things that you witnessed, it's critical to have a field supervisor on a critical call, and we're not doing that right now, and uh, that's kind of hurting us. Uh, the other thing that we're kind of hurt at with our staffing levels is our overtime funding has been exceeded. Uh, our projections are showing that we're exceeded, so we've been trying to cut back and stay within our budget limits on that also which they've done an effective job for, but it also cuts back on the service that we're providing. Yeah. So a lot of the things that we're focused on in the budget process is what we've done over the years is everything that we get into and everything that we do, we find a, a paramedic or an EMT to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and right now, our call volume and relying on the, on the guys to do all the other work, it's not working very well for us because we're falling behind on everything because the field guys are running calls more frequently and tied up more frequently. So a, a lot of our budget requests this year is support staff to backfill to allow these guys to do their job better, allow the communication staff to do their job better and not have all these exterior assignments. Assigned. Well, I think also that, uh, you know, Zach, you do a great job on that report we get every week. Mm -hmm. I think you should bring one of those pages in here and put it up here. I think the public needs to know that. The public needs to know that we run perilously close to you know one unit when there's major incidents we have one unit for the entire county and that's you know i mean we're when i started we had four units on the, on 24 7 and this summer we're going to be at six a 50 percent increase and, and we need it yep. so yep. you know i mean so you know whatever you want to bounce off the commissioners as far as how we can get these things staffed and Right, right now with the the five unit configuration one cardiac arrest wipes up 40 percent of the ems resources in yeah, this county right and if one of them is doing a transport over to anna rundle they're out too yep for three hours at a time usually. right <clears throat> if the bridge isn't backed up now summertime is a challenge to say uh, the least a unique challenge on its own which That's i know good. that you guys have worked hard on and helping solve that also well, and that challenge you know for that bridge is going to get this fall when they start the redecking, it, it's going to be a problem. It's going to be daytime closures, be steel steel plates, the whole nine yards are coming back. So, you know, we, they can't build east and quick enough. So you might get the Salisbury or Christiana. At <coughs> times, yes. Seriously, it, it it and we will go any route that we need to, to to get somebody to the quickest facility. And that's that's one key point that the public needs to know is we can't always bring you where you want to go. Do you yeah. have a relationship yeah. with Christiana? Yes. Yeah, we, we transfer there pretty frequently. Yeah, we took six MDC patients there last year, which is right on par with what we took. They'll take cardiac patients too, right? So uh, depending upon where you are in the county, they're equal distance between Christiana and Chuck Yeah, north end of the county, cardiac patients, stroke patients, Christiana can receive those. I saw a sign today, you know, just a dog eat dog, a message board, Anne Arundel County Police Department, new sign ups, twenty thousand dollar bonus. Oh yeah! Wow. I mean, that was that's what I said. Wow, twenty thousand. I mean, that's they must it's, be in real bad shape. It's fun to compete right now. We've got one county mm -hmm. in the state that just mm -hmm. is fully transitioning over from volunteer to career service, and they're hiring forty EMS providers all in one clip. Wow and we're having difficulties finding one or two so they're they have a quite a challenge in front we of don't them. use headhunters do we we don't know we do now <laughs> i know one so 
Anyways, <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, we, we need to, that's something we need to address. But thank you very I much. I can assure you, yeah. uh, Todd has had the directors together quite a few times discussing the subject. I know Beverly and our HR department has been aggressively working. I can say that they are aggressively doing everything they can to oh, provide yeah. our service. And I know this they're is, pushing us in front of a lot of other departments, right. yeah. uh, just because of the urgency that we have to get our, our people out on the street. So yeah, they've, they've been phenomenal with cutting down our turnaround time from mm -hmm. posting the position to getting people into work. Yeah. So we are trying to move as fast, quick as we can to get that six season <clears> done. I appreciate it. Appreciate well, thank you for all the support. We appreciate yep. everything You're you Pulling that do. uniform thank off you. too, buddy. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Todd. Good to see you as always. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. All right, commissioners, without further ado, we'll move into our final presentation here of this evening. And this is from the uh, 2020 Redistricting Committee. They were here to present the 2020 redistricting plan for the commissioner's review. And this is uh, regarding your election districts. I am happy to say we have. Um, I think the full committee is here this evening. The co-chairs, uh, Gene Ransom, Laurie Plemons, um, bipartisan committee. You can all up. Yeah, yeah, come on up. Uh, we also have um, Hello, Laurie. Elaine McNeil, Mike Arntz, John McQueenie, Tracy Lawrence, and Gene Legg here this evening. And I want to just give a quick shout out. We have a couple support staff members. We have the um, Director of the Board of Elections, Christine Jones, her Deputy Director, Kim Spence, and Beth Malaski back here all provided uh, support uh, for this time. effort. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this, is a, this is a once every 10 year exercise. So I'm going to turn it over to the committee. They've done a lot of hard work on this, and this is kind of the culmination of their, their efforts that we've been working with them on over the past several months. So please take it away. We have a presentation here, and your book is the same presentation along with their final report um, behind that in, the, uh, in your books. First, on behalf of our committee, I would like to say thank you for appointing us to this commission. It's a small portion of what we're able to do for our county, but we're appreciative. And so thank you for giving us the opportunity to do that. As Todd said, um, it's, oh, I should step back. I'm sorry. He said thank you. But honestly, I don't know how much she makes back there, but whoever's in charge of that needs to fix that. Raise it. I don't care what it is, because everything that's sitting in front of you, well, I would love to sit here and take credit for it. I can't. She put all that together. She is amazing. <laughs> um, so as he said, every 10 years, the U.S. Census Bureau conducts a county of the pop account to the population. Utilizing that information, our county is required to re-examine um, the commissioner voting districts and ensure that a good balance and that make any necessary changes that we think are um, are important based on some of the data that we would be able to review, that we would be reviewing for that. Um, we were seven people appointed by different um, political parties. In the interest of bipartisanship, um, Gene and I both um, agreed that, we all kind of agreed that co-chair from one from the Democratic Party and one from the Republican Party, should we decide to make any changes, would be helpful. Um, certainly from the public's point of view, um, we, nobody likes to be um, accused of any gerrymandering. We didn't want that at our little county level, so um, we agreed to do that to co-chair together. And and male and filia, there's that too, right? Um, so our purpose was to review a bunch of information, and I'll go through quickly. I'm not going to keep you here all night. I'm going to go through what some of it was. What this is, yeah, sure, go right ahead. Um, what reviewed, and then why we came to the conclusion that we came to. Keep going. So we reviewed. Um, this is basically the schedule of what we, when we met, what we needed to do. We're here at the bold. The bold, the bold section is where we are now, and then of course the public hearing is coming up, and then your decision. Um, keep going. 
So what we did is we reviewed the census data and the existing commissioner, commissioner voting uh, district boundaries. We had, Gene and I had conversations with some of you. Um, we had many conversations between our, ourselves. Um, we talked about demographic information. We talked about the lines. We talked about several different things. Um, and we determined that the distribution of voting populations is acceptable within the current, you went to, I'm reading, you went to. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're trying our best to get to We are, right? Hard. We're trying to make things fast, right? Um, so we felt that, we, that the voting populations was an acceptable, was acceptable within the current district boundaries. Um, we looked at the, the breakdowns by district. We considered demographics. We considered income. We considered so many different things. We looked at the plan of what developments were in the pipeline coming over, over the next 10 years and how we thought that might affect our districts and our population in each one. Um, that we held several dates um, for public hearings after that that are also part of the package that you have that were town halls that we, that we held, allowing the public to come in and make contact or bring us contact by that. Several conversations by email that we had. Um, we held our public hearing, number three, either, I don't know if that's why that's number one, but we had one. And then Gene actually recognized that um, he wanted to check with the Attorney General's office to see if there were any known complaints regarding those electoral districts. And so he did check with that and determined that there were none. Um, we looked at past reports. We looked at the changes that were made the last time. We looked at the report that was given to you 10 years ago. We looked at um, asking kind of questions a lot about that, all of which, by the way, again, she gave us as soon as we <laughs> asked for it. She was like that. We had what we needed when we needed it, right? Keep going. I'm, I'm skipping through a lot. That's why. Um, so then we had our, another one. We had several, several of these public hearings. Keep going. Um, more information that we reviewed, this, the census record from 2010, we re recognized that the population and, the, and all of the changes that were really happening were sort of comparable between each of the districts and we just didn't see anything significant happening from 10 years ago to this time. Um, even taking into consider consideration with that the developments in the pipeline, how would that affect these changes 10 years from now? We just didn't feel that it would, go that it would drastically be affected. Um, keep going. Um, more information about, all this is in your, um, your thing, in your, your um, package. I'm skipping on that. Mm -hmm. um, so then we looked at this is specifically what we were considering, when, what I mentioned just a moment ago, which is the population from the 2010 to the 20. And you can see that the increases are sort of comparable across the county line or across the um, precinct lines and nothing really drastic. And again, we expected from based on what we saw in the, pop, in the development in the <coughs> pipeline, we expected the same changes over the next 10 years, it appears to be. Um, so additionally, we looked at, I said a moment ago, we looked at demographic breakdowns. We were talking about if, you know, we were going to change it. We, specifically, we were looking at between two and three and looked at the demographic, the income, the families, the children, and all of those things. And we had some, some lengthy conversations about that. Um, and again, we talked about the development projects and any other complaints. And this is all the information presented in your book that we reviewed. These are the things we asked of Beth to present this information to us so that we could be able to review the specific pieces. Keep going. Mm -hmm. um, each of the demographic, pie chart of the, to the demographics of each of the, um, which was a little bit surprising to us, to be honest, we didn't expect to see some of that, but not, I shouldn't say surprising, it's just we didn't expect it. Keep going. Um, so there were several things that we recognized in the process. One is that um, the electric district lines have been in existence for 100 years and that they are closely tied to the land records and deeds. With that goes your tax identification numbers and all of these uh, pieces of information that are tied to that. We did recognize that um, across the country it's really like that, that your election lines are really, and your state lines are really drawn by your creeks and your roads and your um, your um, rivers, all of which can change in 100 years. So we were kind of looking at that a little bit oh. to see how that would affect it. Um, and then that 
the tax identification number is attached to every property in the county and that um, they're mentioned every deed that's recorded and these lines can't be changed. So when we were contemplating even would we decide to think that a, a change would be necessary, that these were things that we had to take in consideration that were some things we could and couldn't do. Um, and that their election, back when I'm on the last one, the election precincts lines, they can't really be changed within the district or at least that we weren't charged with that responsibility. So in part of our recommendation, we do address that to you. Um, Amanda Russ out of our house. Yeah, <laughs> even to put you in a Democrat district, right? Do you do right in Queenstown there, sir? These are the developments that we asked about um, the potential developments by district and, and how many housing units and how we thought that would affect your population. Do you want to um, talk about the, the findings and recommendations? Yeah. yeah. So, um, so essentially, we don't have very many findings. Obviously, obviously, the first finding was the fact that we seem that the numbers were pretty much substantially the same. Of course, they don't have to be exactly the same. There's no rules like with the state law where you have to be within a certain range because we don't have voting by district, fortunately. So that means that you know we don't have that problem that we do and otherwise. But on top of the fact that actually the numbers look a little better than they were 10 years ago, so we didn't see any point in making changes uh, and the stability was logical and made sense. So that's recommendation one, that we do not change the lines, uh, that we keep them the same as what you were elected in for the next 10 years. Um, the second change we recommended, uh, and I'm doing these not in any particular order, uh, I'll do the first two because they're the easiest and I'll talk about the last one, the second one last. The next one is that we recommended that whoever is the board that appoints the redistricting committee in 10 year, years considers having an independent or unaffiliated on the board. And the reason we put that in there, and it doesn't require any action, hopefully when the board who's sitting here in 10 years pulls the report up to look at it and consider doing it, the point we would make is that the, the unaffiliated or independents have almost called my party, the Democrats. So it seems logical that they should get at least one person on there. And that's something that they can do when they do the appointments and just take that into consideration because the commissioners get appointments. And that's fine. If you choose to do more and change the statute, you could. We didn't think that was necessary. We thought that they could just pull the report off the shelf and then recognize that point. We thought it made sense. We should at least, at least comment on it because we do have a large number of people who fit into that category who we tried to represent, but it's nice for them to have a representative, right? Uh, and then the last change was one that we worked, uh, and, I, and I think we have someone from the election board here as well, and she might want to correct me if I say something wrong. But essentially, there, there, was, there was some things that came up in some of the correspondence where, for example, Governor Grayson is split between two commission districts, right? It would have been nice to be able to maybe fix that, maybe put it all in one, uh, but we couldn't do it because there's the way the statute was written after the last time redistricting was done, there's a prohibition in us making changes on election districts and precincts. Uh, we believe that it makes sense to not let people change. Uh, you don't want to have people voting in the same precinct for two different commissioners because that will create confusion. You want to keep that together. But it's not a big deal to split the other half. So what we're recommending is a very simple change that allows the next redistricting board to be able to make corrections like that where if they want to split somebody and make the lines more correct, they have the power to. Right now, the way the statute's written, we couldn't make that recommendation if we wanted to. So what we're recommending, and you can add more to this if you'd like, if I didn't get it right. Yeah, it wouldn't be this you, board, it would be, oh, sorry. Step up to the mic at least. Um, and so the, the point of this would be that what we, we're going to have happen is we're going to ask that Jeff Thompson and the election board give a very simple administrative statute change that just changes that one word. They're going to present that to you. If you're comfortable that you pass the report, then you can make that change. And then in 10 years, the future redistricting board would have the authority, if they so choose to, to make some changes. It doesn't affect anything, because obviously we're not changing the lines, so you don't need that. But what I would suggest, if you look at the future development and the timeline on it, the next redistricting board is probably going to have to change the lines. 
So that way they'll have the ability to do it in a fair way. Um, and right now they're kind of stuck where they could end up having to do something that isn't very fair because they don't have the power to make that change. The one thing you don't want to do is you don't want a situation where you're going to a voting, a voting location and you have people voting for different things because it could lead to real confusion, right? So if you roll into Graceville Elementary School and you got half the people there voting for Commissioner District 3 and half the people are in District 2, if at some point in time we ended up having vote by district, that could create confusion with ballots and stuff. Right now it's not really an issue at all for either thing, but that's why we said just change the one and not the other. That's the reason we actually brought it up because while currently everyone's at large, we haven't always been like that and so that was determined by the voters mm -hmm. of the state and so they very well wanted to change that again. Mm -hmm. So we thought if that happens within the next 10 years, we're not prepared to be able to. But it doesn't that. affect anything that would happen today. Do you want to add mm -hmm. to anything? Yeah, it would just be that the redistricting board wouldn't be the ones that would change the, the district and mm -hmm. precinct lines. It would be actually the board of elections that would do so. Correct. But right now that power is not you, allowed. I'm sorry, you were saying the redistricting board, so I just wanted to make Oh, I'm not bad. Okay, I'm an election board. Sorry. So you guys could make that change? Correct, yes. Oh, but you've got to change the statute so they can. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. That's the point. Right now, need, nobody has the power. The redistricting board really can't. We can make a recommendation, but we're not allowed under the statute, so it doesn't matter, and then they can't make the change. You see what I mean? So you just, it's a technical thing, and we're suggesting that they write the administrative the wall, Jeff Thompson, and to give us the authority it. to do to so if we did. If it's necessary in 10 years, and, and it will come back here with that. Yeah. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. Yes, absolutely. So those are the three recommendations, and I and I and I got to say, everybody worked really well together. It was a great group, and and everybody uh, uh, played their part. It was a good team effort. Okay. I think it's a good group. I think we all agreed that you guys would work well together, and. And we'll take full credit for that. <laughs> I wait for your next assignment. Yeah. <laughs> I would just like to comment that although we were a board, um, it was really Lori Plemons and Gene Ramson, Ransom who took it, and because they were like the head committee head of the two two parties, and they really did all the yeoman's work to get this all done. So the rest of us can't. Uh, no, it was all that. <laughs> <laughs> certainly the staff. Don't, don't underestimate her. She was great. And, and the staff. The staff always does all the work. Very good. Well, thank you very much. Thank you all, all of you who you're waiting agreed to do it. Don't, thank don't you forget to much. make your final recommendation on the slide up here, right? The next step for the commissioners. Uh, well, they, uh, Please go to that. Yeah, page 60. Well, yeah. Page 25. Yep. There you go. There Ultimately, we go. we've decided to make the recommendation that we leave the boundaries as they currently exist. Yeah. So what's we'll schedule a public hearing and yep, so for that? Yep. Hearing and there we go. Yeah. Very good. Terrific. Thank you, guys. All right. Bravo. I'm supposed to be having fun. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We haven't great, had fun great since work. you guys were up here. Oh. Hey, Gene. Sunday. <laughs> yeah. 10 15. Yeah, 10.15. Right. Is that a tea time? No, it's breakfast across the street. 10.15? Why so late? Some of us go and, Some you know, sleep in. thank the good Lord. Oh, I mean, see. That's We right. don't roll over and go, I need more beer, <laughs> and then get up and go to the golf course. Pastor Phil should know that. Right? Yes, Pastor Phil should know that. <laughs> <laughs> you, in your fairness, I didn't, did I say Sunday? Yeah. Oh, I did, okay. Ready to continue? All right, commissioners. Uh, we are now ready for our action items for this F2. evening. We have uh, the Department of Public Works, so tab number two, um, page one, Morning, item one. Good morning. <laughs> Good evening.
We've, uh, you had to sit out there and listen to all that. You got a sense of humor coming in. Huh? There's the other one. All right, so we had a. Uh, Get you through here quick. At our last meeting, we had a comprehensive water and sewer plan hearing amendment. Close the door. On Thank two you. projects uh, Town of Queenstown Potable Water Service Enhancements and Northwest Chester Water Main Extension. And these are eligible to be voted on this evening as comprehensive water sewer plan amendments. I move to approve the text amendment request on behalf of Town of Queenstown to upgrade their municipal water system. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Abstain? So moved, 5-0. I move to approve the map amendment request on behalf, on behalf of the county to upgrade the water service category on nine properties in Chester along Main Street from W3 to W2. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion on this item? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Abstain? So moved. All right. Thank you, commissioners. Uh, item number two on pages three through nine is for the town of Sudlersville, uh, town of Sudlersville Barclay sewer project. This is the interim uh, financing arrangements uh, that we've put forth for the, those two towns for their sewer interconnection. I move to execute the two interim financing agreements with the town of Sudlersville to temporarily supply them with necessary funding to construct the Barclay sewer collection project. <laughs> Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion on this item? <laughs> I just have one comment. Um, in order to save the town money, both in bond council fees and bank interests, the county graciously agreed to act as an interim financer. Note, uh, at the end of the project, all county money should be reimbursed. <laughs> should scary. It's like putting May in. <laughs> well, anyway. Everybody needs wiggle room. Um, county money will be reimbursed. Would be. I'll make that. I'll make that change. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You have a motion and you have a second. All right. Any other discussion? <laughs> Seeing none. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Abstain. So moved. All right. Thank you, commissioners. Item uh, three on page uh, ten through fourteen is the Perry's Retreat Phase Two Public Works Agreement. I move to execute, execute the public works agreement with TOR Perry's LLC, memorializing the purchase of phase two's allocation of 54 residential lots. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion on this item? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Abstained? So moved. Five. All right. Thank you, commissioners. Item number four, this is under solid waste. Uh, item number four on pages 15 through 18 is the second amended agreement with uh, R.B. Baker and Sons for their uh, upcoming rubble fill expansion. I move to execute the second amendment agreement with R.B. Baker and Sons, LLC. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Abstain? One more time. Wonderful. Thank you. You guys stood out there for all this time. We, it's all I good. guess that's the price you pay for being efficient. <laughs> all right, gentlemen. Thank you very much for thank you this evening. I'm glad to see we got that my water line all squared away. Working on it. There you go. <laughs> hey guys, I, I appreciate your time last week. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Very good. All right, commissioners. We have. Uh, 
six action items if you want to turn back to tab number three. So tab three, item one, page one is proclamation 2312 for character counts. Would somebody like to recite that, Are please? Are they here? No, they're not. It's just a, uh, Queen Anne's County was declared a character counts county, <clears throat> and whereas all citizens have been called upon to embrace the six pillars of character and incorporate them into their daily activities and to model these traits of good character, and whereas the character counts, pillar of the month for March is responsibility, and whereas responsibility can be defined as being reliable, dependable, and being trustworthy, and whereas all good citizens should demonstrate the characteristics of responsibility in their everyday life, and whereas each individual is duty-bound to help teach important character values to our children so they learn what it means to be responsible and to always tell the truth, and whereas with humans as with animals, unconditional love does not stop because of anger or indifference. And whereas each citizen must take the responsibility to show that they can be trustworthy, reliable, dependable, and care for themselves, other citizens, animals, and the community. And whereas being responsible helps us build character. And now, therefore, it seems it would be a responsible measure for <laughs> Queen Anne's County Commissioners to hereby designate the March character counts. Pillar of the month to be responsibility. I, you know what, as you were reading that, I just picked up on the fact that, because that's a change in the wording at the very end. So it seems it would be responsible because that's, responsibility is the, you, you following me? So if we were to go back and look at any other characters counts proclamation at the very end, it says now therefore, we the commissioners of Queen Anne's County. We threw in, they threw in the responsible thing to do would be to. Nothing gets by Phil. Yeah. man. He's on top of the, he's it's on the his game. the attention to detail that I bring this organization. Yes, you do. Without you, I don't know what we'd do. <laughs> Just for that, you're reading the next one. Yeah. Give him the big blue book and tell him to start digging in. <laughs> Thank you, you Commissioner McLaughlin, for reciting that. That was very well done. Very well done. <laughs> <laughs> thought it was clever. Everybody in the audience really appreciated it. Yeah. <laughs> you see them? They're just, they're silent spots. You folks who can't home see, but the room is packed. Beth just put it out <laughs> over the internet, too. I'm the only one that got laughter. That's right. Okay, moving on, Commissioners. Uh, uh, item number uh, two on pages uh, five, excuse me, two through four is a memorandum from our uh, Director of Information Technology. This is a server hardware replacement bid to replace uh, six servers at the Vincent building. We received uh, 18 bids ranging from $50,199.24 to over $126,000. And we are recommending the low bidder, Dell Computers, uh, for $50,199.24. It's a big discrepancy. Yes, it is. I move to approve the replacement of the current aging service systems with the R650XS servers from Dell based on the RFQ bid BPM 035588 for $50,199.24 using the IT infrastructure budget. Does that include, include the service for years? Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion on this topic? I guess with technology being changing so quickly, I guess to say we got five years out of this one was pretty a pretty good deal yeah the warranty on these are, are about five years so that's that's about right for uh, for these servers yeah. what is the service agreement 
for these. Um, no, that's the problem. They, they, they won't stand behind it anymore because it's so old. No, the new system I'm talking about. Oh. The ones that we're going to approve. They have a five-year warranty. There's no service agreement. They're we just, service it ourselves. Right? Yeah, we service it ourselves, our ICT department group. Yes, <clears throat> that's correct. Any other discussion? Okay. I move that we approve the recommendation of QAC IT staff to. Uh, we already have a motion. Yeah. Yeah. We, already, we already have that taken care of. So if there's no further discussion. No, oh, it was my, twice. my first one in you. <laughs> All those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Abstain? 5 0. Thank you, commissioners. Uh, the next three items are from uh, Mike Clark. So, Mike, you want to come on up here real quick? These are. Some good stories here. The first item, uh, item three on pages five through 18, is the Maryland Connect Devices Program grant. And uh, Mike submitted a grant on behalf of the county for um, 2,000 Chromebooks valued at $397,000 for distribution. So this is the, the next step to getting those devices and supplying them to citizens of Queen Anne's County. That is correct. Really? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I believe that started with, um, I'm blanking on the name. Who's the lobbyist for the county? Who's the one that Bruce. drew our Bruce Bariano brought this to everyone's attention, That's right. and then Todd forwarded it over to us, and we applied, and um, they, we we put 2,000 out. It's got to be only one per household, and they've got to be they've got to have um, some lower income responsibilities, and we will have to track that. And once if you approve. We'll begin. We've already begun working on an application that we hope which will be uh, electronic and or I know it seems odd to have folks fill out something on the web if they don't have a computer, but we've hopefully will be able to do it on their phone or call us. We're working on getting a line set up at the uh, Department of Aging. What's your responsibility once you hand them out? Well, that's the thing. Um, one of the things we're going to make it clear that it's not our responsibility once we hand them out that we're going to we're working with the library who's been great through this process. They're going to be the ones that distribute it. We're going to collect the applications, qualify them, and then we're going to send the actual laptop and the uh, and the person's name. They're going to call and set up a time for them to come pick it up. They've been wonderful over there to, to do that. And the idea is, is that they're going to have, an, they're going to prepare an information sheet of if they have any questions or need any IT help. Here are some possible places you could reach out to. I know from like 15, 20 years ago, the LMB used to provide refurbished computers, and we thought it was a great idea. Except that we'd have people bring their computers back IT and say, <laughs> say this doesn't yeah. work, and so they, they don't do come back to you. They don't come back to you once once they're handed out. They're out. If they lose them, drop them, break them, nobody cares. It's that's, just yeah. It's my understanding that they're okay. And each so. individual ones just, I mean, they're worth more than this, but they are purchased for just under two hundred dollars. Hmm. So because through a Maryland contract, and we'll actually be getting the actual physical laptops delivered to us. Oh, so okay. Director Clark, this isn't just for students. I mean, no, a senior citizen could sure. apply. Yeah. Income. Mm -hmm. yeah, to yep. And actually, yeah, we had to factor because a lot of students have access to Chromebooks through school. So we kind of factored that into our estimate of how many to, to request. So it's kind of first come, first serve yes. with income. Yes, exactly. And when, uh, when can they start applying? Well, we want to make sure we want to make sure our application's right. We want to make sure that we're qualifying people the way the state wants us to qualify them, and that we get the correct documentation. Because that's if we do that incorrectly, I don't want to have them coming back and say you need to go back and fix it. So we're working on the application. We've got a meeting with the state on Thursday to learn more. 
Um, so that's what we hope. So like we don't, we want to do a quick hard advertisement, but we want to make sure that our application's strong, everything's ready to go, so that it, there's no no hiccups. Because you're going to have, get it out there. I think you're going to have a bum rush. There, yeah, I, I don't. I always worry. Either we, I'm always worried we'll have too much or not enough. Like mm -hmm. we'll have we'll have 1,900 computers sitting in our offices or something like that. But uh, so we'll see. I, it's only one per household. That's the other thing we have to go back and check to make sure we're only getting one per address. That's a state order, um, things like that. So, so if it to commissioner's point if you get 3,000 applicants would you do a lottery system or would you do it's gonna be uh, my bet is gonna be first come first serve so when we're out we're out um, so like we'll like the what and the way we we have this experience in our housing department is that typically the way we determine if somebody's in line is when the app they submit a completed application so if there's certain things that they might gives an application that's half done that doesn't get put in line it doesn't get counted till everything is needed for that but we don't we'll let them know if it's not completed i know other places sometimes you'll submit something to a government not ours but another government and then it just sits there not complete and the person that submitted it doesn't know it's not complete right and that's like that's just not fair we will if we get an incomplete one we'll let them know and in some cases hopefully help them fill it out and be more clear that'll be what the phone line's for part of what it's for so very good. Yeah, that's great. All right. Do you want to read the motion? Is he going to cut me off? No. Okay. I was going to cut you off. <laughs> I move that President Moran sign the attached FY 2023 Maryland Connected Devices Program Agreement. Second. second. We have a motion and a second. Any further discussion on this? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Abstain? <clears throat> so moved. All right. Thank you, commissioners. Uh, thank you, Mike, as well. Uh, item four on pages 19 through 29 is a community development block grant, block grant round one. This is an extension of a prior grant we had for emergency rental assistance, which is also applicable to home delivered meals for $39,000. Mm. I move to approve. I move to execute the Second Amendment to the Maryland Community Development Block Grant COVID. Is that the right one? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, COVID-1 grant agreement for grant CV-1-8. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion on this one? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Abstained? So moved. Well done. Thank you. Okay, item five on pages 30 through 37, and this is a request for the commissioner's approval of two required plans for the community development block grant program, the citizens participation plan and the residential anti-displacement and relocation assistance plan. And Mike's here, he can explain these. <laughs> this is um, when, when I have, what this is for the community development block grant. When we come up, it's, it's got a, on one hand it's pretty great because for example working on a project now that's about six hundred fifty thousand dollars it's going to pay for the roof up in Sellersville over the senior center in Foxtown it's going to pay for the roof for that so that's great it's no county money it's no bond you have to go after you get a roof and but it's federal money so there's a lot of dots we have eyes we got a dot and t's we have to cross and I have to come and sit in front of you and read a half hour thing if you recall those kind of things <laughs> this is explaining the procedures to do all that and they require us to update them so there's five of them in total um, some have to be updated every three years some have to be updated every two years and they require 
commissioner approval every time. This is all pretty much been, this is, these are the plans we've used in the past and um, have been reviewed by Pat Thompson and uh, with guidance from the state over the years. So these are these two plans. These plans specifically are, the first one is just like I said, to make sure we get citizen participation in our projects. The second one we actually don't use that much, but we're still required to. It's, it's procedures that if you ever do a project where, um, where your tenants, you're, if you're rebuilding a housing project with CDBG monies or something like that and, the, and tenants have to move out, you have to have procedures to make sure that they, they're not homeless while you're doing the work. Mm. You want to read that one, Patrick? You got it. Um, I move to approve and execute Queen Anne's County Citizen Participation Plan 2023 and the Queen Anne's County Residential Anti-Displacement and Relocation Assistance Plan 2023. Second. We have a motion to second. Any further discussion on this? <clears throat> Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Abstain? I vote. I ran into our friend. Oh yeah. And Everything going okay? Yes, she Good. was very very pleased with the process. Good. And she's doing well in school. She's got uh, she's starting to get her her nursing degree and so um, well done, Mike. Thanks for sharing that. We well done. This. I appreciate it. Thanks for everything. Thank you, Mike. Thank Thanks you for anyway. waiting patiently out there this evening and thank you commissioners. Uh, our last item is the desk item we have here on the desktop, a uh, support letter for the spay and neuter grant to the spay and neuter advisory board from our animal services uh, chief. I move to execute the letter of support for the Maryland Department of Agriculture for uh, the funding for the spay and neuter program for animal services. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Abstain? So moved. All right. Thank you, Commissioners. That is all of the action items for this evening that I had for you. That's it. Press around to you feel like speaking? You sure? Okay. <laughs> Anybody online? Uh, no, no one's online, but we do have one email that came through. Okay. Okay. Fire away. Okay. Dear Commissioners, Sirs, I was advised by Elizabeth Malaski last June 2022 that the money for a dog park in Centerville was, quote unquote, set aside in deciding where to put the dog park, where and when. I have been writing directly to Elizabeth Malaski and the public on the next door Centerville about the need and request for a dog park in Centerville for two years. I am not the only one. There are thousands of dog owners in Centerville who need and want a dog park. A great place to put up a fence around an allotted acre for a dog park is at the unused, rarely utilized for sports areas called White Marsh Park or formerly Bloomfield Farms. Parking is already provided there. So my question is, where is the money set aside for the dog park and where has it been decided to place a dog park in Centerville and when? We are weary of driving 50 miles round trip to the Centerville dog park and another 50 miles round trip to the, center, to the Chestertown dog park. We want a real dog park in Centerville. Kindly give us an answer. This is from Elizabeth M. Lupre of Centerville, Maryland. And that is it, sirs. Thank you. All righty, we'll go right to roundtable then. We'll close the press and public comment. Uh, eeny, meeny, miny, and who's number? Jack. Mo. Your yeah, turn. I'm going to be quick. <laughs> Top I just of the in, in Phil's vein, I'm just giving a sports update for Queen Anne's because Phil seems to forget that we oh, have a high school lady, north. Uh -huh. So uh, at the state wrestling championships in the boys' side, um, in 
pound, we uh, Tremaine Jackson finished third, and Zach Curry finished fifth in the 160 pound. And on the girls' side, Kaylin Bryant finished fifth in the 170 pound girls, and Allie Connolly finished sixth in the 105 pound girls. So that was our first girls' states, and they performed very well. So that's it. Thank you, Patrick. He doesn't have anything. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we had a uh, pretty incredible day at the Whitsitt Center on Friday at 9 o'clock uh, with Department of Health Secretary Laura Harris-Scott's team showed up, Brian and Aaron. I believe Aaron is her chief of staff. Thank you. And there were uh, five counties represented, Cecil, Kent, Caroline Talbot and us and they were there for really two reasons to keep the Witsit Center funded That's awesome. and during the tour um, it was taken off the divestiture list so it was kind of exciting um, and the second reason but really the real reason that the five counties were there is for the vacant building which we did a tour of with the state is to turn it into a crisis center that we've talked about. I don't want to dwell on it, but we've all, mm -hmm. we've talked about it actually here. So I just want to let you know, mm -hmm. I personally did not get a warm fuzzy from the, the bean counter, Brian, but from Aaron, the chief of staff, she gets the vision uh, of turning it into a, um, a mental health crisis inpatient with a step down PHP program. So, uh, Bill Webb just sent out an email. This is where I would like to at, see if I could put you guys on the email chain with us. Uh, he's trying to drum up county support to start maybe uh, taking it to the next level. And he wants to know who's interested in supporting this and supporting the Whitsitt Center because we got to go through the rehab, convince the state to rehab that, both sides. He's the Kent County uh, Health Officer? Yeah, yeah, he's all over it. But he needs support, right? Mm -hmm. the, the interesting thing is that one time, they didn't want the Witsit Center at all. They tried to back out of it, and now things have completely flipped, that they, they see the benefit of it. The people aren't getting out and going and, you know, getting on methadone and going down the street and breaking into people's cars. They see the benefit of the Witsit Center and then trying to create a crisis center for at-risk youth. They also see that vision. You wanna add anything? So we had, we had the county executive from Cecil, uh, Danielle Hornberger, county councilwoman, um, Jackie Gregory. Gregory. We had from, from uh, uh, Travis Breeding, and I think his, his, your counterpart was there, right? Shelly. No. Well, Shelly was there. Shelly was there. Jeremy was from not. Kent. It was somebody oh, else Caroline. from Caroline. And then from oh, Talbot. Their health, their health officer was there. That's what it was. And then from Talbot, uh, Commissioner um, Callahan and somebody else. So, I mean, there were a number of commissioners there. Mm -hmm. Good. All right. Philippe? Um, so... I just wanted to mention one more last one last time for uh, to congratulate the Ken Island High School Lady Bucks basketball team for making it to the state championship. That's the first time ever in school history that they 
uh, were able to make it to that point. <clears throat> I got to follow that journey um, through the Bayside Championship game down in the Salisbury Civic Arena to the regional games that they continued to win and get to the point where um, they got to play at the University of Maryland last week. And it, the results obviously were not where we wanted, uh, but um, nonetheless, they had an amazing season, a wonderful group of gals that, that challenged each other to, uh, to get to where they did. And, and a couple of those games were rather exciting uh, where they came back from a 16-point deficit. Uh, just shows the character of these gals and, and how hard they work together. Um, so kudos to them. And then, of course, uh, all the, the fans that were committed to following them on their journey uh, to the state championship and their commitment, uh, filling those arenas to watch these girls play and, and cheer them on. So uh, just a shout out and congratulations to Dave Plumer and the coaches at Ken Island High School for their Lady Bucks success and making it to the championship game. Sweet. About a perfect strike zone, good there. Yeah, and I have a perfect strike zone. Okay, good. Okay. There you go. Well, I, I I attended the game with the Lady Bucks, the University of Maryland. We brought the kids there to see them. They they played well. They did with a lot of heart, and uh, they all worked really really hard. So we were proud of them, and there was a really great turnout from the county to be there. We had more people in our section to support our team than the other team did. So that was really nice to see. Uh, the Carolina High School dance team goes to states this weekend. So wishing them well on that. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's all I got. Very good. I'm not gonna. I think I'm good to go this time. I'll, I'll wait till the next meeting to talk a little bit more about my prize. Uh, all right. So I'll make a motion for to adjourn. Second. Second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Thank you.